resides in the in-between. It's between elegance and crudeness, real and unreal, love and lust, quiet and loud, subtle and grand, funny and dead serious. She works to craft stories rooted in a confident sort of uncertainty, a place where the story's characters feel simultaneously actual and imaginary. Fowler has four story collections, Suspended Heart, People with Holes, This Time While We're Awake, and her most recent, the amazingly titled, Elegantly Naked in My Sexy Mental Illness, and one upcoming collaborative poetry collection, Bearbolt's Swinging, written with Meg Tewitt and Michelle Real. You might see Heather roaming the halls of the UCSD Lit Building as the Academic Files Coordinator, or you might see her editorial hand in Corey Magazine and the Journal of Postcolonial Cultures and Societies. Please help me in introducing Heather Fowler. from my newest book, uh, which I kind of affectionately call the Cray Cray book, um, Elegantly Naked in My Sexy Mental Illness. This is a really interesting text for me because as the fourth book that I've written, I worked with a graphic artist out from the UK who made this a collaborative project. And so actually it's an illustrated collection uh, with the artwork done custom for each story. But what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to read some small excerpts from the story so that you can get a sense from them, and then hopefully read a few little poems so that we can transition into John's reading. Um, so there's, there's a wide array of stories in this book because actually it kind of spans a 20-year period of my writing, and it's, there's a funny background story about this, uh, which is that I was doing a fiction marathon, an open fiction marathon, where everyone was open to come and participate, but I was being stalked on Facebook at the same time. And um, as the story started to involve mental illness, the stalking got worse and worse. So while that happened, the marathon was killed halfway through. Um, but in the meantime, I wrote some very interesting stories that were getting even wilder profiles, sending me messages and doing all kinds of weird things. And then I said, I'm going to put a book together and realized I've been writing stories about mental ill people for 20 years. So. Um, I'm going to read a piece first called, uh, that's an excerpt from a piece called Speak to Me with Tenderness, How I've Sung. And this is a story about a woman who works in an administrative setting, whose co-worker kind of falls in love with her, but he's not willing to talk to her directly. So he starts making up all of these false profiles and sending her messages. And um, 
So you'll hear a little bit about that. Each reeked of him, though the similarities were web-like and intuitive, so she could not, after a while, explain how she knew that a teenage girl, horror writer, was him. Freak, mystic zealot, was him. Crazy, obsessive, where's my god lover, was him. Nature not save the environment, was him. Freaky sex magazine page, was him. Aspiring poet who never read, was him. But she knew. Every new Howard she talks to would do something weird. Friend her when they had no friends, display a quote that sounded like a fuck off to her patent mom reaction to his mixtape, address something she and Howard had just spoken about, staplers, dreams, or even simply show art or book taste that, in combination with whatever they said first, second, or third, spelled out his name like a flare from an airplane, Howard's son, are you Emily Peabody from Detroit, Michigan? Sometimes he would scheme coordinated themes with his personas, and she'd clue in on a new linked identity. Clowns one day, for example, another day fashion. Not that he would admit it, not that it wasn't making her feel crazy, not that it wasn't wasting her time to reply to strangers. In the end, she concluded it was a big situationist experiment, as he claimed many times over their scattered lunches throughout the last three years he was into as a sort of unplugged, lucid dreaming. And he would one day write a book of essays about it, so this idea made all the more sense when the shadow people asked her questions that he had narrowly alluded to in previous cryptic emails. Still, she had hardly enough time for real people, much less the shadows of a co-worker she could only suspect was head over heels in love with her. So, she resolved to confront Howard's son. She had, after all, just enough ammunition to make it appear that she knew more than she did, having strolled past his desk during his bathroom break and seen such a shadow page displayed, wherein Shadow did what Mom Your Poet Fucker had said. You're just so kind, Lisa, so lovely. I wish I lived in your town because I would take you out for sure. I would recite Yates to you, though I think he's overrated. She had replied all this visible on Howard's screen. I hate romance and all stupid pricks who want romance, sorry. Dope, she thought. I guess I'm getting a little crazy honest without irritating. I find this subterfuge. What if Shadow Dimwit, Nami, or Poet Fucker was really some sweet guy, some nice guy, that she had clobbered over the head due to recalcitrant, non-telling, situationist, freak magnet, and devilishly handsome Howard's son? She took a moment actually a few seconds to ponder this idea, critiquing her own cruelty. Then, as if a light bulb flashed on her head, she reminded herself, Shadow, Dimwit, Mommy, your poet, fucker, is on Howard's screen, dumbass. This means he is Howard. Howard is him. Howard, alternative white, S, V, N, V, F, and then replied, wow, you're pretty angry. She responded, yes, I'm actually a rabid bulldog lesbian with a preference for harvesting and walks on the beach. Sorry. Quote me some happy actor, okay, grins. And I like long women strong as bold, vocal, unchallenged by honesty, unless I like men, but you never know. I do not mind performing CBT on men, however, if you'd like help with that. There was no reply that day, none. Howard avoided her eyes walking around with a wounded yet curious look. When he stopped by her cubicle a day or two later, he said, are you going out with girlfriends this weekend? He had never asked her about girlfriends. Yes, she said. 
thinking about his pretty green eyes, about he probably, how he was probably in that very moment imagining her performing oral sex on another woman, then went back to her paperwork. He upped the stakes on his gift giving or promised gift giving, telling her he would mail her things he thought she wanted. A first edition streetcar named Desire, for example. And how do you have that? She asked. And how do you know I'd want that? It's lying around, he said. Somebody gave it to me, I just thought you'd like it. Doesn't everyone like Williams? No. Some people hate Williams and think he was a misogynist woman bashing jerk of a gay guy. I like him in small doses. He was rather pathetic. Do you even like Williams? Are you a fan? Not really, Howard, so I said. That's why I gave you my book. He took this moment to scratch his growing stubble, stare beseechingly at her with his heavily lashed doe eyes, as if he said something altogether different in this eye meat than he had in his words. This is when little horror writer freak chick wrote Lisa a message on Facebook. So you like uh, write about desire a lot, right? I need to put more of that in my horror books because they are so fucking ugly that all they do is kill people and sex and death are hot because people like that. You like write about love slash desire, right? I mean, where people don't just kill each other? Lisa ran a weekend column on wedding cakes. Still, this writing about desire thing was a stretch. I write about cakes, she told odd horror writer teenager chick, adding a sweet seat and robicon. Cakes are wedding accessories that don't enter the bedroom, sweet seat emoticon too. People eat them, wink. I have a day job at a home management company. I'm really busy, I don't think I can help you, but good luck with that, good luck. OHWTC did not write back for a while, but replied the next week. By the time she did, oh wow, that's heavy lady. Lisa was too busy talking with other alters to reply. She thought continuously, how many messages with double meanings can one compose before it all means everything and nothing, but more accurately means nothing? She considered closing her existing Facebook account to start a new one with only people she had met in person. It was easy for shadows to linger, to infiltrate, and then she wondered to herself, does Howard fancy himself a sexy teenage horror writer girl? Because if so, that's appalling. But coincidences added up. Another day, he had a strange guy from Czechoslovakia talking to, to her. Can you host me with English? The trouble is that while he, Howard's son, was busy trying to figure her out with the other people he created, the real him saying ridiculous things irked her. It's Monday today, Lisa. Isn't that great? He was losing her. Absolutely. She would have given anything for a little speech from Howard that points more than a coincidental crossing of their paths office talk or mild interest, and she was beginning to hate the computer and him. Howard's son, you are such a douche, she thought each time she replied to particularly weird questions from his alters. She consulted female friends when this debacle got too trying, like the question was a no-brainer. Do you think that it's cute when someone wants to scope you out so badly, they might say, create multiple anonymous Facebook identities to talk to you, or is it creepy? Friends confirmed creepy. Oh, fuck Howard, Lisa wanted to say. Can't you just ask me out? Can't you just take us into the wild desert of desire so that we can do the freaky horizontal mambo? I'm feeling like a guy here. This blue ball thing, it's no joke. There is really a good 
Melamal salad up at the cafeteria, Lisa, he said Tuesday. Shadow, shadow, shadow love. Wednesday, did you hear Edgar Quantis pudding? Shadow novel, skin trade, Moscow. Did somebody say Trotsky? Shadow, shadow, shadow love. Do you like the song of the birds in the morning, he asked on Thursday? Shadow bright, shadow light, shadow poet fucker here tonight, here with more shit to lie about. What do you think of the bear market? Will the bull ever come back? Stream of shadow, shadow talking, shadows making, real seeing, wild shadow turbers, bears, shadow fucking, etc. His shadows kept appearing, increasing their demands. She gave flood three drops each. She had to admit it was cool how he crafted these profiles, but where was it getting all the pictures? Some tiny pig stash? No, it must be flicker. Hijacking feed streams? Did he research albums of dead people? He even made different emoticons for each shadow, which he stuck to religiously. Maybe he had a flow chart for shadow tracking, a character map. There was that weird thing on his desk once that had like 50 emails and passwords on it, and maybe Howard Sun, shy, nonverbal, retiring, and self-erasing Howard Sun was writing a killer novel about this deceptively quiet guy talking to a woman online all the freaking time, except with multiple personalities or personas. And it was to be a thriller. Maybe all these personalities would end up leading her around the globe, and then she'd land somewhere to meet her new true love, personality Jackery Randall or someone, and there Howard would be, sitting on the hotel bed, Screaming, hi, Elisa, I've missed you. By that time, of course, Lisa would be looking for whichever shadow fucker had become so real to her that she both believed firmly and had long since stopped thinking he or she was Howard. So her eyes would be trained to look for the face of the new beloved, the one who spoke most kindly and sweetly and consistently because she had decided this self, the once Howard shadow, now beloved, as a whole character, until there, at her perfect romantic liaison, with new and far healthier love, there was only fuckhead Howard Sun sitting on a mystery couch of thwarted desire like the twisted Norman Bates in a bathrobe or something. That, or Howard Alterfucker beloved character would then play the Twin Peaks theme, or Cohen's Take This Waltz, or something terribly driven with teenage horror writer girl and straight up kill her, strangling her with excessive bondage or bathroom, flipping small razor blade cuts on her whole body beforehand with lots of verbal humiliation, some kind of teasing, fucked up gameplay, manipulation, pain, oh my god, the pain. Howard was going to kill her. This whole cat and mouse game was just leading to some donor or fetish murder, and that's why Howard was so good looking but socially inept because he was a serial Lisa, he said, stepping up to her cubicle, his ridiculous pocket protector precariously dangling close to falling out of his pocket. He leaned in holding a cup of ginseng tea. He looked so nervous, he continued, are you okay today? She wanted to say, go away, Howard. I'm fantasizing about you killing me. She decided not long after this that she must visit a mental health professional. <laughs> so that's a little excerpt from that piece, just to give you a sampling. Um, and now I'm going to take you somewhere else. Uh, this book has such a wide array of stories, so that's why I'm just going to use some small excerpts. Um, I'm going to read a little piece of a story that's called Mothers and Angels, and it's set in Italy uh, at the time of the bubonic plague. 
Uh, and it was actually very fascinating because I started to do some research when I was uh, interested in writing about World War II and I was uh, looking at the, at the stars that the Jews were wearing in World War II. And so I did some background research and I wanted to find the earliest instance of uh, the sewing of fabric onto people's clothing and persecution related to their religion. And so I found this instance that the Catholics in Italy were uh, persecuting the Jews. And I decided to write this story set then. So I'm going to read a tiny excerpt of that. Um, and and if, I, if I slaughter any piece of Italian, I apologize in advance to any Italianists in the, in the audience who did read and help me with the, with the Italian in the book, uh, such that it would be correctly, even if my accent doesn't do it as much justice. Okay, so um, I'm Maria Sampling from this story, and we have this young girl and her mother, and they have, they have left. They have basically left the city, and they're kind of hiding, and they're trying to find food, and they're trying to have refuge, and uh, the mother has the plague. So I'm going to read a little piece of this story. May 3rd, 1348. Yesterday when she came home, a dingy cast clung to her skin. I've seen them, she said, the Rosettis, the Di Carlos, and there was no food. A thousand florins could not buy us food. The Rosettis were our new neighbors. They had been a family of 12. Mother spoke on historical. Wasn't the flood of 33 enough? What a curse this city. No bridges of the Rue Conte over the Arno. We are punished and doomed. God does not exist. He is testing us. No. As if De Brienne wasn't the worst, pursued by his men, and now we are pursued by him. It's a damned life, Cara. She swept her hands over her dirty skirt as if to smooth it. She said, I dreamt last night of bridges swept away by black water and chairs mangled against the city walls. I dreamt of children carried away by that water. Their eyes open. They did not breathe. Their eyes were black. Only now there is no water. Only this heat, this fear of dying, this death. We had lit no wicks to preserve the secret of our presence. She sobbed and flung her arms around my neck. No, no, you must not cry, you must not. Tears burned my skin. We wept as I took a blanket and mopped her face clean. That was my first offense. She had told me not to disturb her dust. If I had left her alone, she may have survived. That night, I slipped into her bed. She woke screaming, and I hushed her. The next day, I said, I'm going to look for food. If harm will come, it will come. She sighed, but didn't argue. Before dark, she said, you must be back before dark. I brought us meat from a freshly butchered dog, bread, and a cluster of grapes. I left the knife on the road. Outside the door, a white kitten mewled, starved ribs cleanly visible, and it appeared that tiny worms crawled in its stomach. My hands were dripping with blood. I walked past it quickly and shut the door. We cooked the meat and then ate in silence until Mother asked, What is that noise? Do you hear something? The mews ricocheted faintly in the walls. I hear nothing. It's Alfina, Mother said. I'm sure that outside the door she found us. I'll go get her. It's not Alfina, I shouted. It's a rabbit kitten, and we can't let it in. I know her meow, Mother said, and we must bring her inside. Mother, it is not your cat. I saw it. It's white, not gray like Alfina. 
Still, my mother said, a white cat in times like these is an angel. We'll let it in. I opened the door and the cat rushed in. It went to her immediately as if it recognized its chance for survival. May 5th, 1348. The kitten was mother's sole pleasure. She nurtured it, coddled it, spoke softly and sweetly of meals it would eat when this was done, but it was ugly to me. Mother would do nothing without it. The cat had sharp golden eyes that burned in the dark like sticks from a spit. Each day I went out and found whatever was edible. Mother spoke to the cat and daydreamed, huddled on a chair. She named it Speranza, Hope. One day, she would not get up from her pallet. I feel warm, she said, I need rest. But she could not sleep. Beneath her blouse, the black dot darkened. She did not tell me about it for days. And when she did, she said, Cara, go find another house, leave me. I could not, I would not. Go away, she screeched, you're not safe here. I prayed for her, but the bubbles appeared on her thighs, thighs and groin. Her cheeks swelled, but it was better to live together than die separately, and so I remained. May 7, 1348, dusk. I often think about that moment, she said, when you go up to the sky. I imagine a lady in gold sheets pulling me up an alabaster staircase, and your father is there. He smiles and welcomes me. There is no plague, no bodies left uncovered. I can talk to my daughter there. It's Mother, I am your daughter. I have no daughter, she said. And then, as if I were a friendly urchin, but you can keep me company. Beneath her skin, the bruises appeared. She walked like a drunkard from room to room, delirious, carrying the cat by its nape. Her hair, once lustrous and black, now appeared a matted nest of char. She laughed, her head flung back on her shoulders, had jokes only she could hear. The cat was dying, too. Bits of fur fell from its abdomen. Worms thrashed beneath its skin. So I'll stop that exit there. Okay, she just give you a sense of that kind of piece. Okay, and I'll try to keep my time in mind, too. Um, so, uh, and then, is anybody a Flannery O'Connor fan in this room? I'm going to switch it up and do a little bit of one, one more small excerpt from the book that has a little bit of a different flavor, so you can kind of see what I was playing with in this book. Uh, has anybody read the story of Good Country People? Okay, I love this piece, right? Because it's this horrifying piece where this woman uh, who has a prosthetic limb gets conned by this con man and goes up to this barn and they're making out and everything like that and then he steals her leg and leaves her in the barn. And um, it's, it's a very fascinating piece. But anyway, so I got offered, I got solicited for a piece of fiction that was uh, going to jumpstart off of one of my favorite pieces of fiction, and of course I shot from the very stars because Larry is one of my very favorite authors. Um, and so I thought, you know, I've been mad about that girl in the barn for a long time. So I'm going to write a story where he gets a little comeuppance. And uh, Flannery O'Connor's piece is called Good Country People. Mine is called Good Country, period, people. So uh, this, the, in this excerpt, he goes to the next house trying to steal more from another girl. Uh, in this case, our protagonist in this story uh, has a prosthetic hand. But he doesn't know that she's really good at fighting. Um, okay. 
So he is, he's going to sell Bibles at this house, so of course, sells Bibles. Who loses his eyes shall find it was a thing she remembered the boy had said, and oh Lord, he did trouble and want something found. Maybe just something nice for her mama, who was a good woman no matter what anybody said. It did rather trouble, trouble that Ray Adams wouldn't give John Ella any sugar. Not like her mama didn't make him dinner, do his dishes, not like he had a chance with trouble and. Soon enough, though, Ray Adams had left for the night, skulking in the sock, sun hung low in the sky. Not long after, Trouble watched the boy exit, pressing his silly lips to her mama's round hand, kissing it again and again, like in queenly tribute. But they hadn't, Trouble had speculated, done nothing. Boy was still simpering, still too kind, would have had a taller gait, how boys were when they pounded something. And fuck it all, Trevor Ann said, sweaty from her exertion. She went out into the field to run sprints again, and always while running, she pretended she was a boy, maybe an Olympic contender. She was right in the middle of fantasizing. She had won an enormous race, the crowds cheering madly as Bible Boy came up on her. She would have let him walk right past, but he took to watching her through five sets of sprints. At their conclusion, she huffed and puffed, ignoring him. Finally, she sat in the tall grass, crushing it beneath her. Then, why are you still watching me, she asked. Because I want to, he replied. She smiled before saying, you sell any Bibles in there, holy man, weak-hearted boy? No, but I think your mama might have wanted me in her bed. So do it already, Trouble Ann replied. Would it kill you? I'll give you a nickel. The boy's eyes widened as he took an insuck of breath. You say you want me to do your mama? She cocked her head, inspecting his lapel, his dirty pants with dust dragging on their hands. You or somebody better. What's, what's that on your wrist, he asked, sat beside her and said, it's a blue club, right? What, can't afford a real hand? Not going to grab anything with that. I don't use it to grab, she said. Giggling again, he then took her club fist and brushed it over his cheek. She pulled it back. I got a real prosthetic, she said. I just don't like it. But what else you got in that Belize besides Bibles? Oh, nothing, he said. Nothing you want. I bet something, she argued. You don't know what I want. We should trade, he said. You just tell me what you want out of this shitty asshole of a life, and I'll show you what's in my bag. Trouble Adam said, deal. I want to own my daddy's old store that he lost it to the bank. I want to fire my boss, and I want to know everybody's business. Good enough, now open it. You're kind of pretty, Charlotte, and the boy replied, dirty hair and all. Think your mama can see you and me out here in this tall grass? Why, you ask, Charlotte inquired, interested. You want to wrestle? Because I would be happy to. Yeah, I want to wrestle against those tits. He said, be a good girl and give them to me. Oh, I'll give them to you, all right, she replied. Stifle your face with them till you can't breathe like this. She made a couple of asphyxiated faces, clowning, then said, but first show me what's in the bag. The boy scooted his bony butt closer on the grass, weirdly whispering again, I got a girl's leg in here. I got another girl's eyeball. Can I have your plug hand now, gentlemen, to place in my hand, to put it on the leaves? I think I want it. No, you stupid piece of shit, she said. You can't have nothing you want. He laughed, another stream of high-pitched giggles, and then said, keep it in the bag if you want to. She grabbed the Belize and threw it open. 
there they were, just as he said, a real Bible and a big Bible too. Shitfire, she said, you weren't kidding. I may look like one, but I don't kid, he murmured, tracing his fingers across her breasts. She trembled. The sensations were confusing, sweet and menacing at once. Not like she had much romance nor cared for it, but since she remained quietly under his touch in shocked deliberation, he put his other hand deep in her trousers just after unbuttoning them. So I'll stop there on that story, but if you're interested in finding out what happened. Okay, and I don't want to take up too much time, so I'm only going to read one poem, because I'm fearing that the time is going to short. This is a poem from a series called Alexandrine. Alexandrine's for Lorca, and I'm only going to read one, so I'll be quick. Two? Okay. Uh, This is a wonderful series that I wrote uh, when I was really enjoying reading a ton of Lorca. Unfortunately, because I don't speak Spanish, I read them in translation, but I had about 15 different books, and I was really falling in love with occasion differences in translations, so this was a lot of fun. Um, and they're all sonnets, and they all mimic the form of his dark love sonnets, which was a secret work of his that he wrote. Um, so this one is called She of the Throne, and they all start with a quote from Marco. I don't want to hear again that the dead do not lose their blood, that the putrid mouth goes on asking for water. Go to her then, your black Isis, goddess of love, mother of hawk-headed war, protector of dead. Why do you wait? Death's lizard approaches apace with the cold rivers of regret in which you bathe. His blood at one with the sweeping current of loss. These she understands for your afterlife is hers. Yet now you have every limb with which to caress. The hot leech of your tongue has not been plucked at root. Bow early for heat's sacrifice of love and ache before you are only a wraith in her enfold. Never impressing, forcing weeping, nothing is set. The cult of men will worship her forever. She alone restores you to life. Tears flooding the Nile, gathering you. Rebirth, wet daughter of dry. That's fun. Um, and one more short one because I was told to. Uh, this is called Four Lorca on Whitman. Because it is just that man does not search for his delight in the general blood of the following morning. Lorca. The night will come home on time, the stars keep their flames. The ones with butterfly beards won't search the dark swamp for the bodies of submerged children. Viral grace will continue to elicit its fair tribute. Nothing is as it seems. The engines of America will cease to crush each moth at the wheel of justice. One should never forget that purities of mists are born and subsumed by every traveling cloud. Where the national world makes its call away from men, where the national man makes his call away from harm, Oh, Walt Whitman, his temperance, his faith in rivers. These did not die when his hot breath last left soon throat. We're all seeking more pure, white-bearded gods to soothe sins 
of industry, civilization, debauch. So thank you so much. one trick to get them to listen to one poem. <laughs> and they'll say, oh, I really like that poem because I remember the rest of it. I'll try this one. <clears throat> it's called Clearance. Really, I mean, I can, I can tell. I haven't talked much today. <clears throat> the thing about an empty page is not the neatness of it, nor its play to memory, nor the pleasure it gives being turned, nor its lack of an illustration to distract my inattention there, no matter how I may console myself thinking so. As in gazing at a distant peak 
I don't have to climb. Nor the luxury, even, of someone somewhere managing to throw all this space away for nothing. Is it perfume from a dress hanging idly in her closet? Or is it the runway an airplane ascends from after a loved one's departure? When I, dangling by the large plate glass inside the terminal, imagine the press of her flesh just gone, quickly dissipating, stretched out before me, unnoteworthy, like gold to airy thinness beat, like the hours I have left I will never share with anyone, so eventually will forget stark, burgeoning, beautiful, yet spare, about to be laid bare, as I veer away to return to old habits, newly strange to me now.
be a problem. And yet, the whole time you're alive, you're always trying to get past the paradoxes to what's clear. So you think, well, at least when I die, it'll be clear. But then when you get there, you really wish there would be paradoxes. See what I'm saying? Sort of reverse. Um, and how the gods probably envy us for our uncertainty and our questions, if that's true. And this is very perplexing to me. I just am uh, having trouble with it. It's really interesting, but but like I have all these uh, doubts and uncertainties, and yet if I didn't have them, I'd probably be dead. So it's 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 a problem. So once and done. One of the ways the other these paradoxes is the way that time works and how uh, we think there's always a lot of time, but then we end up with memory or with anticipation, focusing on something that's very particular rather than the breadth of things. At least I think poems tend to do that. And, and you become fixated on the thing that's the opposite of what you think you're thinking about. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm still working on it. Um, so I'll read a poem. This is called Party Look. The look you gave across the room, sensing I too had been looking at you, interrupted that casual afternoon, the way a door swings open two, three or more times before you glimpse, gasping, the body on the floor. I thought little at first. The faint smile on your lips dismissed me, hiding how distraught I later surmised you must have been assuming you became undone as I did, smiling my way through plastic cups of gin. The few words we exchanged confided nothing, like most of what I've said until now. So unless you find this, you won't guess what I've resolved just once before I'm dead in some small cove I want to press myself against you more than once, assuming you'll feel as unbound as I do. At least then, if we resort to grunts, you'll know, I know, you knew, I eyed you. Just that one thing. This is this poem by Thomas Hardy that I wanted to read. It's just about the same, same thing. It's called On the Departure Platform. We kissed at the barrier, and passing through, she left me, and moment by moment got smaller and smaller, until, to my view, she was but a spot, a wee white spot of muslin fluff that down the diminishing platform bore through hustling crowds of gentle and rough to the carriage door. Under the lamplight's fitful flowers, behind dark groups from far and near, whose interests were apart from ours, she would disappear. Then show again, 
So I cease to see that flexible form, that nebulous white. And she, who was more than my life to me, had vanished quite. We have penned new plans since that fair fond day, and in season she will appear again, perhaps in the same soft white array, but never as then. And why, young man, must eternally fly a joy you'll repeat if you love her well? Oh, friend, naught happens twice thus. Why? I cannot tell. It was uh, Thomas Hardy who said that sometimes you may see someone across the room and glance them, and you can't forget it. And it may only come clear to you 50 years later why. Which is a good reason to stay alive. You know, it's just as you get older, you don't know if you can have that 50 years left. But it's really, uh, I think, true. Henry James also writes about that. You can walk past a, a room uh, with the door open and see a group of people sitting, having a meal, and it won't leave you. It won't leave you. It's this bizarre thing, the very small thing takes on something called memory. Uh, I'll read another one like that. Uh, this is called Stump. A hollowed out trunk in a field. A tree I never knew. Catalpa maybe, or L. To us, a shallow fort we soon outgrew. It withstood a hard decade of winters. Look at it now. Fat stub. A small lump stuck in my imagination, like a breadcrumb brushed under table linen. Frost, no doubt, had killed it. Or who knows, a rare pestilence of scarabs. Yet glued still to the inside wall of my cranium, it remains somehow faded to be exhumed like this, its jagged edges splintering above that hide of snow we loved to puncture with our boots, stumbling into its core. And it has worn through the years of my forgetting friends' names, the total casualties of the Arab war, a trace of nothing, a place where I scraped my knee once, sat on its roots, and cried. Though who can recall what for? What is uh, supposed to be nice about poetry readings is that you get take pleasure out of being miserable. It's another one of those things. So if I'm really successful at conveying to you how miserable I am, then you'll be happy. <laughs> so I'm working on it. This is from a book by John Hawkes. It's called Travesty. I mean, it's a poem about that book. In Travesty. In travesty, 
a novel by John Hawkes, the papa drives his wife, son and son's wife, toward a cliff in France, next to a sea, I think, to crash and die. Everyone balks, learning how little papa values life, that he would ravage not only these three who mean the world to him, but their love, too, the trust they've put in him, letting him drive them, for instance. Why would any man decide, late in his life, living in France, to do such a criminal act? How dare deprive them, his loved ones, of their best years? Is it pride, self-hatred, or ambition, this disdain Papa has for those likely to survive him? Does he fear how much his heirs will forget or how much they'll remember? Fear the pain of losing love or of losing to rivals who will get to see 10,000 more suns set on Normandy, Lake Erie, or Caracas than he will. I'm amazed how Hawks can write, so I'll feel sorry for an abject killer, even if I can't recall where his attack was, nor how his victims looked. But here, tonight, in pitch black, death could not feel any realer. I have a, a, my only Facebook poem, which I'm not going to read, is about being unfriendly. Isn't that what they call it? Like, what do you say? You know, I mean, it's such a strange word, unfriendly, or is it disfriendly? or defriended, or, you know, something like that. So I'm really interested in how much text you generate. And Heather and I first knew each other, not on Facebook, but just <laughs> because she took a class of mine that was online, of which she is completely expert and I'm totally inept. So I should have been a student, and she should have been the professor. But it was really, you know, like, it was terrible. It was terrible because I'm no good at it, and she was so good at it, she made me realize how much that can work. Because I was one of these sort of people, very skeptical. I'm still skeptical, but she really did an amazing. She really knew, knew about that system. Um, but I don't. I can't really connect, uh, so I forget. I'm not going to try. Um, I'll just read this poem instead. This is called um, It's another moment. Moment. The opposite sort of moment. This is called After a Poetry Reading, Delmore Schwartz Returns to His Hotel. I think maybe you know Delmore Schwartz. It's in his voice. That moment I walked in, I lost my beauty, and in a bookshop, no less. Everyone, from grandparents and aunts 
I'd only glimpsed above my crib to that waitress with Judy embossed across her breast who'd made a pun on just dessert at lunch, flashed by like hints from some Talmudic commentary. Barely composed and wobbling, I tried to grin to mask that I could feel my bowels cutting loose. The boy behind the register then snared me and asked if I'd be reading Gunga Din, a poem he'd memorized in school. Obtuse, I muttered what I write. Fat books of verse by poets I could not identify marshaled the shelves with me so lost among them like Sherman at a powwow of Nez Perce, my first impulse was to shoot. Who knows why? Had I known any peons, I'd have sung one to keep the drowsy store manager awake as I mowed down biographies. Instead, I fingered through the secret life of snails, feigning surprise until my bellyache devoured my insides. I want to be dead, forgotten. Everything I think of pales next to this bourbon bottle by the bed, browner than Chief Joseph. I had potential once. My ambition ranked me with the giants. After tonight, my genius scalped and shred. Disgrace will seem about as consequential as melting poetry down to a science. And then I wanted to write a poem trying to use different verb tenses. A lot of times people don't take advantage of that different verb tenses or different verb shapes. I just, it's called your other woman. That woman who exposed her breasts to me was not the one you prophesied. Exactly as you'd said, she suddenly undid her blouse and pulled the front aside, inviting me under those evergreens to taste her chalky, freckled flesh and press my palm inside her open jeans. I hesitated, trying to refresh my memory of what else you'd predicted. Reclined against a tree at tents, she'd guide me to one breast, you'd said. I licked it, conspiring with my silence. In one sense, she matched your dream of my desiring, nudging me down between her thighs, where coaxed by her sighs, my mouth searched the spring my tongue drew moisture from. Her muffled cries, as you'd imagined them, garbled the words she seemed determined not to keep. Words voiced as sounds shaped 
to be overheard. As though, like you, she felt her body leap some crevice, then savored the journey down. You wouldn't have been disappointed had you stepped out, dropping the dressing gown you'd loosened as you told me this, and joined us, enraptured by the woods, just how you'd promised you would, with one hand on my back, one fondling her cheek, while you two kissed for the first time. You might have been distracted by the pine smell, unmindful how her taste felt different on your lips from mine. You might have led her onto me and faced the two of us entwined, tracing the line from her to me while I stared up at you and she clung to your shoulder. Still, nothing, nothing that happened could subdue the indescribably delicious thrill I won't ever forget of lying at your side, spent yet alert, breathlessly heaving, listening to these things you prophesied, seduced by all you then had me believe in. Uh, I'm thinking how these opposites work and 
here. Poem for Peter. The walk through the woods we took, Peter, our last together lasted 15 minutes. But I've walked that path again a hundred times. Better ready to impose on you my way of talking, my way of eating at you to say you love me, instead of the old reassurances. Most leaves yellowed backed off from us, from our shuffle. On the trees, a few yet clung like childhood friends, your childhood friends, unknown to me. We spoke only once, I think, of your father, dead a year by then, not of mine, who still haunts my sagging body at 60. Why didn't I insist that you say you love me that day, as now I'm the only one who remembers? Others, steeped in their accumulated wealth or hundreds of lovers exempted from guilt, most likely have forgotten your popping walk, thin Italian nose, voice like rice paper. You've boasted of your nights of wild pleasure in Times Square. Well, I devoted my words to the first of the women who often complained of my distractions. Why did I not slap you hard for your elemental cool? What made me think I knew then what I've hardly come to know yet about the blunt edges of my own tender skin, my chugging heart and liver, my long round intestines that have proven of so little use save giving me life? Could I have berated you more, Peter? to get you to love me back in those spruces? Not for the sex in your case, but for your alms. I've always wanted to be poor, not starving, not so complicated, just sturdy and straight as nails. And here, you've been happily dead 25 years, you fucking bastard, leaving me only this. Chaucer writes this long poem, which now people are 
debating whether or not the women are really good in the poem or not. It seems as though they're really good. There are people like Cleopatra and so on in those poems. So I can't write uh, Chaucer's The Legend of Good Women, but I thought maybe I could write The Ledger of Good Women. And so I have some poems in different women's voices. They just have numbers, most of them with some titles. And if you don't mind, maybe I'll try to read you know, two of those poems. This is she, number 51. Each one is in a different voice. And they're kind of internal, most of them. Like they're all talking to their therapists or something. Although in this case, she's just talking to herself. She, 51. Here she comes again with her tray full of soft cheeses and sliced apples I don't want. Just peanut butter, Melick is all I'll accept from you, my dear. Who, I wonder, invented the prized formula for this mild haste I clutch each lunch to save my waist? Doesn't she know yet, my daughter-in-law, my figures all? It's all I have, all I have left, all anyone I know anywhere really cares about, though not to shout it, but to keep quiet as the fatter ones celebrate their restaurants. Day after day I sit on Bradley's brittle beige couch, bland as a field mouse, 70, or am I 71 now? The children peck my cheek on their way out to school again when they return. They hardly notice my bracelets and rings, let alone the flecked skin one man said he'd sin seven times over, bribe God himself just to take a taste of. I knew even then what he offered wasn't love, but a bittersweet, mild kind of, well, not hatred, but playful wrath. He, I remember, made me want to take a bath, not from disgust in truth, but to soften myself, get myself ready for his lust. But nothing, not even what one like Stephen might call dirty, ever occurred. And so far as I know now, they're all dead, including the honest ones, ready not to sin, but cut off their limbs for a bed life with one wife. Peanut butter keeps me thin, just in case one walks in and turns his eye on my waist or thigh. Melex from another country, plump, wry. Maybe she'll finally hear me before I die. This one's she number 58, this is panic attack. When he takes me to eat, we both have a sense we will never boast of our conquest of each other. Instead, we'll rest only further along like pioneers out west who would defy God were at best an appetite to make life new. It is not right what we've done. Who, to myself, I think, could condone this way we lie, touching and moan each mouth on each other's soft part, pull in, yet reach out, ease, yet start, fast and hard? No one, only he and I can know this, ever, free and separate from everything. So, live with it, 
I whisper. Sing of something else if you sing at all. Then he tells me as we eat how beautiful I am down there, his mouth half full of red wine. Dare I say I will never say that to him. I'll kill if when at that point my husband asks me, I deny I put my hand in him, I cry, thinking of him as beautiful. I can't see him then, not at all in my mind's eye. Erase the dead Indians, hide how wet the bed got to stay keen on this home life everyone's seen with me as wife and mother, blue cupboards, full fridge, every word true, square table, ledge not for stepping off, cabin built to last. Leaping with so much guilt, I'd rather be plain. His beauty floats before me now, but duty silences me. Say nothing, dear, please. I foresee grief, desire, fear. And I'll just do one more. Uh, it's called Miracoli. Miracoli is the name of a small little tiny chapel in Venice, which uh, a couple of people here have seen, I know. Uh, it's a beautiful marble chapel, and it's a, like a little jewel box sitting on a canal, all marble. Santa Maria de Miracoli, but this is just called Miracoli. She counted the steps to the chancel, then slid to one side, maybe to hide, maybe to emerge from the stream of those who climbed before and after, away from the gilded red runner newly draped there, and the sign, no visitors beyond here. Her fair hair, fallen to her shoulders in the off-light from the rafters, grew paler than heaven. No one knew what language two worshippers spoke in one pew, while the others, like spry flowers in neat rows, threw glances at the railings either side of the stairs. The ivory-faced sirens beneath them abruptly aglow, and above them the small figure flecked by the sky. Before we withdrew, the scarf over her shoulders, blue and red, slipped, though not indecorously, exposing the delicate line of her neck. Only whispers of an indecipherable nature broke from the nave, cool as a cave, stark in spite of its speckled design. Outside, in the glimmer of day, after another moment, she mentioned not the carvings we had entered to see, nor the rose swirl in the gray-green marble I treasure, but the unearthly music that had arisen from the choir, no choir present, a music 
she must have suddenly imagined flooding that space where little air escapes. It was silence I had sought, where she had found among the quiet parishioners a fray of song. I, who liked to sing, pass on this memory, sprung like a shout of sprigs in spring from one now gone. Thank you. Thank you very much. So it makes it, it's like it's the difficulty. It's like if you were digging ditches all day, then you came home and you might have this different kind of energy. Yeah. Than you do when you have to use the same sort of energy, even though for in almost in a kind of corrupted, corrupted way. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an impossible question. You have to live a long time. You have to be really driven. And you, you um, I think you have to play tricks on yourself. Uh, and one of the best ways to do that is to do something like, you know, do readings mm -hmm. or uh, look for deadlines for things to be submitted. 
or go to conferences where you have to present yourself or do something that says, oh, I have to get this done by this date and or it's going to be a disaster. And then it's easier or harder to stay up all night working because you've created this false kind of expectation. I mean, they're, yeah. fa they're false because if you don't do them, nobody's going to care. But, if, yeah. you, but yeah. if you set them up for yourself, then they become real for you. So it's all kind of a trick to get yourself to keep working. But it's really difficult. Uh, did you know that when you were in your MFA? Well, I, when I did mine, I thought, oh, I want to go into publishing. So I did the one that would give me the RA. So I could work on publishing. Right. But small press is different than, I met like a huge distributor and publisher. So they're just very different worlds. I thought, oh, I'll have some creative stuff to do, but it's just high stress operations. I mean, because I, I think a lot of MFA students don't realize how lucky they are to be poor and a kind of idle, as opposed to being, you know, making money and not having time. So that's why I'm thinking it's like uh, they should all hear you say that, so that they realize to exploit the time when they do have the time. So that they're, they're anticipating this because uh, I have a lot of students who are sort of in a hurry to graduate, and I always say, "Why? You know, take your time if you can manage it financially. I mean, if you yeah. have responsibilities, it's a lot more difficult. Yeah. But unless somebody's holding a, a paycheck that you really want out in front of you, you can take your time. And the, the European sort of notion of being a student your whole life is perfectly respectable, but Americans don't." That, so you have to get a real job. Quote unquote. And what was your path? Do you write when you're teaching? Do you? It's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I make it worse for myself as a poet because I also write criticism. And when I started, I couldn't write poetry without reading and writing about what I was reading. And I couldn't write poetry. I couldn't write about the poets I was writing about if I didn't write poetry. And so I ended up, I ended up doing both things. And then when I start actually working, then it, it makes it even worse uh, to do all those things. So, and I'm slow also. I'm a very, she's very fast, but I'm very <laughs> slow. It takes me a long time to write a line, to get a line to um, So yeah, I mean, sometimes two or three hours minutes for sleeping, uh, if you can balance it, you know. And I just uh, look for the breaks, look for the two-week period that you have or the long weekend, and try to keep those times coming. I would add, too, that if you have a community uh, from your writing program or from your graduate degree, people that you know you've written with and that you feel like you may bond with, or anything you may have worked on journals with, anything like that, letting those people know what's going on with you is kind of wonderful because in my experience, I've had a lot of writer friends who will call me back to the craft, even when they know that I'm having a really difficult, um, challenging time. And in a sense, it's almost like your friends in your writing group become kind of angels who are reminding you to do what you love. Yeah. And um, no, so good. I think that that does help. to leave the space for the next thing that's happening in here, but we can um, we can say thank you. And there are books for sale.
Thank you.